So, Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' inauguration speech as the king of the coming heavenly kingdom. All right? This is his, I'm starting my reign. Sermon on the Mount is perhaps the most famous text. We talked about this last week. It's influential in our culture, and so we have to escape a cultural understanding of this text. Not just this text, but the whole Bible. We believe what the Bible says because of what it says, not because of what our culture interprets it to be, right? We have to get into the meaning of God's Word. So that's why we focus on things like context and meaning. So a few things that that I want to lead us with. So we we talked about context being key. Uh, A few more review things. Jesus is addressing, or Matthew is addressing Jesus to the context of the Old Testament, right? He is concerned with making sure that you see that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that came before him. He shows us Jesus is the Messiah. He shows us that Jesus fulfills all the prophecies. Then the question of what is Jesus doing on the Sermon on the Mount? Well, he's doing really three things. Jesus is preaching to the people that are obsessed with law-keeping. Remember we talked about that last week, how they like tons of rules, right? And so the rulers of Israel, we kind of framed it as they had, they had monetized and weaponized the law of God to exalt themselves and disenfranchise others. So if you keep the law well, you become more important. And if you can't keep it as well, you're less important, right? They, they'd monetized it and weaponized it. Second thing, Jesus is teaching from the other side of the cross. That's, that's crucial to understanding what Jesus is saying in this passage. That Jesus is not giving you a pathway to heaven. Jesus is the pathway to heaven, right? This is simply the descriptors of what kingdom dwellers look like, okay? This is, uh, Jesus is teaching how making him your king will translate into life, ethics, morality. He's talking about worldview. What is the worldview of the kingdom dweller? So Jesus is teaching you about the outlook of a kingdom dweller. We've read our scripture this morning. Now, I want, I want to break it down for us into four sections, okay? And, and there's only one part where it gets kind of weird. Okay, so we're, doing, we're going to do 5, 1 through 10 as a section, and then we're going to do 11 through 16 as a section. And then we're going to do something odd. We're going to look at 21 through 48. We're going to skip uh, 17 through, uh, through 20 for a moment, and then we're going to, we're going to come back to it because uh, I, th- I think it's going to help us understand. I mean, it's not always the best way to read scripture out of order. But it's helpful sometimes for us to study it in that way so we can really get a grasp on it. It was helpful for me to be able to present it to you in this way. So I'm not making this as a rule. I just want to paraphrase that and say, like, we're, I'm doing this intentionally so we can understand it better. But the temptation here, as we see these four sections of Scripture, would be to see them as four individual things. Because they kind of contain different ideas. But what we want to do is we want to knit them together and see how they all, they all play together to one overarching message, Okay. So even though we're talking about chapter 5 in four sections, it's, it's all one thing. Okay? We're just doing it so that we can break down the ideas, understand them, and digest them a little bit more easily. Okay? All right, we've got 48 verses. Let's do this thing. Verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying. Okay, so there's a few things here that I, I just want to pick up on. First of all, there's crowds and disciples. Maybe you noticed that, maybe you didn't. But, but sometimes it's helpful to know who Jesus is talking to, right? Well, is this, is this for the church or is this for people outside the church? Who's Jesus addressing? I think we need to ask that question here. But we want to know, who is Jesus talking to? Because it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain. And this wasn't to escape the crowds, but rather to be able to address them more, more easily, right? To kind of elevate himself so he can speak down and his voice kind of flows down the hill, right? So he goes up the hill and he sits down, and the disciples come to him. So, so who's Jesus talking to? 
Well, Jesus is speaking to both. He's speaking, I think there's a distinction that Matthew's making that both are present, that there are both disciples and crowds present in the same moment. So it's kind of a weird way to think about it, but this is what Matthew's saying is that not everyone who follows Jesus is a disciple. Not everyone who associates with Christ is a disciple. And even, even from, this, from the very beginning, this is the very beginning of the gospel, we've, we've barely met Jesus here. There are people who will associate with Jesus because what's he been doing? He's been healing, teaching, doing miracles, right? People that want to associate with Jesus, but they're not submitted to him as Lord and King. So when they come to his, to his teaching, it's not from a point of view of saying that, oh, I want to sit under your authority, right? I want to be under your authority, They're not doing that, but the disciples are. And this is a caution to us this morning as we approach any text of Scripture, that if you're just passively associating with Jesus, but you're not not laying your life down in front of him, you're not saying, I want to make you Lord, that you don't have a place in his kingdom. And Jesus makes that clear in the Scriptures. The Scriptures make that clear as a whole, that there's no middle ground with Jesus, right? There's, There's in or out. And Jesus says, anyone that wants to be in the middle and kind of ride the fence between being submitted to his lordship or just or or not that he doesn't have time for them. He, in fact, he says he says I, I spit those people from my mouth. Right? I, don't, I don't have time for them. There's there's no point. Right? Either be in or out. Submit to me or don't because I'm the only way. So that's our caution this morning as we approach this text. We're gonna we're gonna we need to approach it as disciples of Christ, not as the crowd, as as people who are ready to submit to whatever comes next, and not evaluate it and then I don't know I'll think about it and, and kind of scurry off the other direction. So Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. And it says he opened his mouth and he taught them. That's just a simple way of he's, he's about to teach with authority, right? It's, it's kind of weird. It's like, well, obviously you have to open your mouth to teach, right? Matthew just means to highlight that I'm, he, Jesus is going to say something. He's going to say something important, okay? So Jesus launches into what we call the Beatitudes, all right? Which, which is a fun word, um, but it doesn't really have like a cool, like, like, it's not like some cool secret meaning, right? It's just Latin for blessings, all right? The early church fathers who, who, who studied this section of Scripture they wanted a name for it. It's, it's a good section to know and study. It's Jesus' words, and so they just called it the Beatitudes because it means blessings. And if you look at the, the first 10, 11 things Jesus says, they all, be, they all begin with the word blessing. So that's why this is called the Beatitudes, right? The thing about the Beatitudes, though, is I think the cultural reading, which we're trying to get away from, is that these are if-then statements, right? If I'm poor in spirit, then I'll be able to get into the kingdom of heaven. If I mourn, then I'll be able to get into the kingdom... These are not if-then statements. Jesus is saying, I am the king, and these values that I'm going to give you here, they're not statements, they're values of the king. He says, these values will be the heart of my kingdom dwellers because they're my heart, and I'm the king. So if you want to be in my kingdom, these are going to be, this is going to be what your heart is. So these are the descriptors of the people who already find themselves in the kingdom of heaven because they have submitted to Christ. So here's the thing. This is the, the Beatitudes are blessings, right? They're descriptors. What does it mean to be blessed? Because that seemed like kind of a loaded word to me. So I wanted to give us a quick definition, right? Because so, Jesus doesn't define it here. He just says blessed are the poor. Matthew doesn't give us any more context than that. So we have to assume, this is how you read scriptures. This is, this is your hermeneutical note for the day. We have to assume that the way Jesus used blessed is consistent with the way it's used in the rest of scripture because Jesus is the author of scripture, okay? So, when, if we do a quick survey of the Old Testament, what you find about being blessed, like when God blesses someone, what it means to be blessed, it's three things, okay? The first one is that it's a heavenly reality, all right? 
So I'm going to give you these three things, and I'm going to give you some smart guys' really good definition that's better than mine to sum it all up for you, okay? But I just want to illuminate a little bit. So number one, it's a heavenly reality. So being blessed is a heavenly reality. It's knowledge and assurance of God's goodness towards you. It's an awareness of, of the promise of, of God and his plan to fulfill them, right? So it's a heavenly reality in that way. Number two, it's, it's an earthly experience. And I want to be careful here. This isn't like a prosperity promise thing. We can experience God's blessing now in part. But ultimately, his blessing will be fulfilled in, in the coming kingdom in heaven, right? So, so think about it this way. Jesus says in, in 545, um, he, he says these words. He says, so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. It's an interesting verse. So God's goodness causes his grace to overflow for all people commonly. Right? Not just because you love him, but just because you are, because God is that good, right? He doesn't just bless those who follow him and worship him. He blesses all people. He gives good things to all people. So the blessing here in the earthly experience is knowing, is the knowledge, knowledge of God and relationship with him that allows you to see the gifts that he gives and worship him because of them. You see the, the same gifts that everyone has, but you get to see them as gifts from God and worship him for it. In that way, it's an earthly experience. The third thing, this is the most important, it's an undeserved gift. Blessing is always undeserved, okay? Apart from Christ, no one has ever merited God's favor. It has always been undeserved. Just, just think about the, the people in the scriptures that, that are described as particularly blessed. Think of Abraham, right? What was he doing? I don't know, he was just an idol worshiper from Ur. Like, he was nobody, right? Think of Moses. He was a murderer who also abandoned his people for a short time. Think of David, a murderer and an adulterer, right? Paul, he, he was a persecutor of the church. None of these people deserved anything, but they were blessed beyond measure because God chose to, not because of anything they had done. John MacArthur defines blessed as this, a deep supernatural experience of contentedness based on the fact that one's life is right with God. And I like that. We have to qualify what life is right with God means, not something you've done, but something Christ has done for you. But I think that's really true. A supernatural experience of contentedness based on the fact that one's life is right with God. So this is most likely Jesus' meaning here when he says blessed. Blessed are the... But here's the thing I want to notice about the Beatitudes. It's like most of them, like blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who, are, who hunger and thirst. Those are good things, Jesus. What are you talking about, right? Like these circumstances, just to evaluate them objectively, they're not tops. Like I'm not, I'm not like, oh, cool, I want to be blessed like that guy. Like those are, those are not things that should, should appeal to us as an outsider. But I think, it's helpful if so, I think it's helpful to understand what Jesus is getting at here if we phrase it this way. If we say, why is someone blessed who is poor in spirit? Or why is someone blessed who is mourning? So let's do that. All right, let's dive in. Verse 3. So why is someone blessed who is poor in spirit? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. That's actually a really simple term when you think about it. Poor, like not having capital. Spirit, not having spiritual capital. Okay? Like I, I don't have anything spiritually to offer you. Specifically when it comes to God's kingdom, I am spiritually bankrupt. To put it in modern terms, right? I have a, an issue with bankruptcy, and it's the fact that I have nothing spiritual to offer God. All that I come to God with is a bad attitude 
and a bunch of sin that I can't do anything about. I am spiritually bankrupt. I am poor in spirit. And when I recognize that reality, I can then face the music in such a way that allows me to approach God through Christ and turn in repentance. This is, this is the foundation of the gospel, understanding that we have nothing to bring to the table and that Jesus himself brings everything to the table on our behalf. That Jesus' righteousness is the only righteousness that can gain us access to the Father. I have nothing to bring to the table, and therefore I must depend on someone else for it. So friends, this is from the very beginning, the invitation this morning to respond to the gospel. Recognize that truth. Be poor in spirit today and say, I have nothing to give to God. I have nothing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to depend on God himself to provide it for me in Christ. And I'm going to go to him, and I'm going to lay down in front of him at his feet and ask for mercy, knowing that in Christ that mercy is guaranteed if I will place my trust in Christ. So do that today, friend. Like it's, it's, it's really simple. It's really simple. You have nothing. God has everything, and he's offering it to you in Jesus. Spiritual poverty is the basis of the foundation of understanding the gospel. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. If you're poor in spirit, you get it. So why is someone, who, why is someone blessed who mourns? Let's, let's, let's do num- number, uh, number two here. Why is someone blessed who mourns? Well, based on that first reality, poverty of spirit, you're deeply saddened by this reality that you are spiritually bankrupt. And not only that, but that for you to be in a right relationship with God, God himself has to come. And be killed on your behalf for your sin after obeying all the laws you couldn't obey. That is sad news. But here's the thing. If you can mourn the spiritual reality, your spiritual bankruptcy, it actually leads to true comfort, doesn't it? Because if, if you can face the reality and be sad about it, it leads to real insight. right? So if we mourn the right things, we find ourselves comforted by the heavenly truth that God has provided for us in Christ. So the mourning is a good thing. It's a blessing because, again, it's, a, it's an emotional acknowledgement of a spiritual truth. Next, why is someone blessed who is meek? Meek is a weird word. I think we have lots of weird definitions for it. I've heard it defined as like, like power under control. We always try and, try and define meek as something dignified, even though that's not what it means at all, right? The definition of meekness is that it's not dignified. So when we try and like, oh, he's just so meek, like we try and pray, like it's not, it's not an appealing thing to the world. Meek is just like Jesus, right? It's gentle, it's lowly, it's unimpressive, I read in a commentary this week. Meekness is unimpressive, right? It's not asserting itself for the sake of oneself. That's meekness. And we have this misconception about Jesus that he was just kind of like, maybe just like, it's just really easy to go like, oh, I don't really care, you know, just do, you know, you do you. Like, I'm, I'm just here to support you. That's not Jesus. He's the same dude that goes into the temple and flips over tables, calls people sent out, says really inflammatory things to like spiritual leaders of the day, but he does so with a meek spirit, right? You can speak truth in love. That's, that's meekness. But here's the thing about meekness. Think about it. In your experience, do meek people run the world? Like, like do meek people, people that are unimpressive and lowly and gentle, do they ascend to the top of the corporate ladder? No. No, they don't. But in Jesus' kingdom, it is highly valued because it reflects the character of a holy God with long-suffering kindness. Meekness is God's character, and so it's valued. And in a way, it's, it's the relational aspect. If mourning is the emotional uh, aspect of, of responding to reality, then meekness is, is the relational aspect of it. Right, the way I respond to, to other people, to, to the way I the way I deal with myself and others is in meekness because I, I know my place 
if I've seen Christ and I've seen who I am and what my sin has done, I see my place in the world. So meekness, gentle, lowly, unimpressive. So why is someone blessed who hungers and thirsts? Let's look at this one, verse 6. So the language here is actually, I thought this was helpful, it's, it's actually more like starving and dying of thirst, if you think about it, right? So, so it's not just like, oh, you know, it's like I haven't eaten in a few hours, like I'm snacky. No, it's like I'm starving, I'm starving and dying of thirst to have righteousness. And I thought of this, what Jesus is getting at here, if you get stuck at home like uh, in a blizzard or something, and you have food at your house, will you starve? No, because you have food at your house. If you don't, then you would starve. This hungering and thirsting that Jesus is talking about for righteousness is a recognition that I don't have any food. I don't have any righteousness of my own. I don't have anything in the house. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty because I don't have anything to fill myself with that I have brought to the table. On the, 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 not recognizing this is if, if you think you've filled up your heavenly coffers, right? If you think you have a bucket in heaven that you're just stacking good deeds in, right? And you're just stacking righteousness in, and that you are, in a sense, spiritually full, that you're more empty than you realize, right? If you think you're full, if you think you have something to bring to the table, then you won't be hungry, right? Because I've got food. I brought my own. Jesus is saying, no, you didn't. And to recognize that is reality, only those who recognize that they have no righteousness of their, of their own and hunger for Jesus's will be filled up with Jesus's righteousness, not their own. So why is someone blessed who is merciful? Uh, that's verse, verse 7. Why is someone blessed who is merciful? And this is the thing about mercy. I, I think about mercy, it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's giving someone what they, what they don't deserve, right? It's extending, it's extending grace. It's tied to grace. It's not, it's not grace. But mercy is hard, and especially when you're the one who suffers an injustice, specifically, right? Like, that's, that's the best time to give mercy, but it's also the hardest time to do it, right? Because true mercy really costs you something. And that's true of Christ as well, right? To show mercy to us, what did Christ have to do? But he had to, it cost him everything, right? True mercy cost something, and it cost Jesus everything. All of his rights surrendered, all of his heavenly deity, everything he gave up willingly to be merciful, to us. And so to be merciful, we have to receive and understand mercy from the one who defines it on the cross, Jesus. Jesus shows us, he shows us a different kind of mercy. It's not, it's not like a superficial mercy either, like, oh, you know, like someone bumps your car with a grocery cart in the, in, the, in the shopping parking lot. It's like, oh, don't worry about it. Like, that's not mercy, guys. Like, mercy, mercy is a deep, what Jesus shows is a penetrating mercy that changes not just the way you act towards other people, but the way you feel about other people, right? That you don't have rights to press on them. So you're blessed. If you've seen mercy, you can give mercy. If you've seen Christ, you can be Christ to others. So why are, the, why are you blessed if you're pure in heart? And this, this is a really good one. There's so much here. I wish we had more time to go through this, and maybe we can come back to it at a different date. But blessed are the, are the, are the pure in heart. Um, think about this. This is more than just good intentions, right? Maybe thinking, like, oh, you, you know, that, you have such a sweet heart. You know, I, I hear people say stuff like that. That's not wrong. I know what you mean, right? Like, they're, they're a nice person. This is more than that, to be pure in heart. It's not just having good intentions or just being kind, right? Your heart is pure the way Jesus means it. Th think about what purity is, right? I had a water bottle up here, but, and I really wish I had it. <laughs> uh, 
It, think about pure water, right? There's, it's pure because there's, there's nothing in it, right? It's, not, it's unmixed, right? It's unalloyed was a, a way I, I heard it phrased as I was studying. Because it's unmixed with this hypocritical lie that I'm not as bad as, as, as some people say I am. Or I'm not as bad as, I'm not all that bad, right? I'm, I'm okay. Hypocrite, right? To be pure in heart is a blessing because you can stop the act of pretending you're not something that you are, which is terrible and sinful, and you can boldly approach God in Christ, right? If you have a pure heart, the act can, can stop, and I can go to God and, and, and face the music with Christ as my defense, right? So that's to be pure in heart, to have an unmixed heart, unhypocritical. Why, are the, why is it blessed to be a peacemaker? You're blessed because only one who has experienced peace between himself and God can make peace with others. And this reality, this being a peacemaker, really encapsulates the worldview of a kingdom dweller. It's one who fights for other people, not with other people, right? You're a peacemaker. God has made peace with me and empowered me to make peace with you and for you and between you. So those are the Beatitudes, and these are, these are all the, the attributes of the kingdom dweller. But Jesus ends it in, in a really interesting way okay so the last two 10 he says blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake and then 11 he says blessed are those who were blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you and i as i was reading this i was like i've never read it this way before i was i was shocked i was like okay if i'm the first nine things all right if i'm being these if i'm poor in spirit mourning if i'm meek if I'm, if I'm hungry and thirsty, if I'm merciful, and if I'm pure in heart, and I'm a peacemaker, why would anybody be mad at me? Why am I going to, like, I feel like it should be smooth sailing, Jesus. What's up? I was so confused by this. And this, this is ultimately where I landed, that it's tied to what Jesus says next, which we're going to read. So the question is, if someone is above, is all the, thing, the things above, why would any person not like them? And, and I thought of two things. Well, we like when other people live like the sermon suggests, right? Like, I would like that person because, like, I think as a, as a sinful human, I'm going to get my way a lot, <laughs> right? I'm just going to be able to walk all over. But here's the thing. We like it when other people are, are the Beatitudes, but we can't be bothered with it ourselves, right? There's always there's an excuse for us. There's a reason that this doesn't apply to us. This is tied to what Jesus says in verses uh, 13 through 16, I'm going to read them to you. It says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And you could preach six sermons on this, but we're going to try and do it in about 50 words. Those who are radically, radically Christ-centered in their lifestyle will rub up against the world in a way that creates hostility for those, from those who are hostile to God. The thing about it is, is Jesus is teaching with the whole of Scripture in mind even scripture that hasn't been written yet when Matthew's writing. Think about that. That's the power of Christ. He knows that if you follow him radically, if you follow the full counsel of scripture, that people aren't going to like you because it's more than just being nice, right? It's being salt, right? What happens when you put salt in a wound? If you do it to somebody else, they're probably going to hit you, right? 
If you're light, you know, like imagine shining a, a bright light into someone's eyes who's like, like you're outside somewhere. It's like, oh, God, stop that. It's uncomfortable. But that's what Jesus is asking us to do. Romans 8 says this, Romans 8, 7. It says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. And indeed, it cannot. Listen to that. The, the, the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. So if you are God's children, as defined by God's word, then people will not just be hostile to God, but hostile to you because you represent him. So the world will like it if you live your nice, sweet, little, little nice little life over there. Don't, leave, don't, don't mess with me. You do your thing and, and leave me alone. But the disciple of Christ is called to be something else. We're called to be the salt and the light, to be the contrast to the world, right? To be the seasoning, right? To be the light that, sh- that shines in the darkness, to be God's heralds and his representatives of his coming kingdom, proclaiming the coming kingdom. Jesus calls his kingdom dwellers to be the contrast to the world. So when you live for Christ and proclaim the gospel of Christ, you will be opposed, and this is where our application is coming, you will be opposed and reviled and mistreated. So here's the question. I think Matt talked about this like three weeks ago. If you're not, why? If you're not opposed and mistreated and reviled and persecuted, why not? If unbelievers find you easy to get along with, always kind, never judgy, or hypocritical, air quotes, that's for the recording, not the people that can see me, might that be a sign that you're not salt and light? If you're just innocuous? If you're a disciple of Christ and you're also innocuous to the people around you, you've missed it. If you look so much like the world that people can't tell you're salt and light, that should be a wake-up call to you. And my, my counsel to you this morning is, is consult Scripture. See, see where you fit, right? See, see what, what that hole is in your life. That, if, that if, if things generally go well for you and everyone loves you and, and you never get persecuted for your faith, no one ever says boo to you because you, you're never saying boo to them about anything. Like, that, that should be a concern to you. It means you're, first and foremost, probably not presenting the gospel to people. The gospel's offensive. People will not like it. If you, if you share the gospel enough, you will frequently find people that not only don't like what you're saying, but hate you for saying it. And that's okay, because they need to hear that message too, that they need to repent and turn to Christ. So this is where I want to switch things up a little bit for us. I'm going to try and burn through this last little bit as quickly as we can. So verses 21, I want to look at 21 through 48. So we're going to, we're going to skip 17 through 20 for now. We're going to come back to it in just a second. I want to look at 21 through 48. Um, because I think 17 through 20 is a preface to everything we're going to read in 21 through 48. Jesus is giving context to what he's about to say, but I think for study purposes, it's helpful to go, to go back and look at it after we've read this, okay? So let's look at 21 through 48. 21 through 48, Jesus uh, is going to clarify the true meaning of God's commands in the Old Testament over and against the scholars of his day. Okay, you'll notice Jesus using the phrase, you have heard that it was said. He's going to say that a bunch because he is highlighting the fact that these people have been taught wrongly by people who don't know what they're talking about. That the law and the tradition that exists for them has been twisted and turned and altered in a way that no longer honors the original commands nor the one who commanded it. It does not honor God. Jesus is addressing that. And he wants to do this for two reasons. He wants to show the weakness of the scribes and the Pharisees and anyone that would pretend that they have been perfectly obedient. And he wants to show his authority 
as the only one who can rightly interpret and rightly proclaim Scripture as the condemnation that it is in the Old Testament, right? And he can do that because he's God and because he's going to do something about it. All right, so let's look at these. Look at anger and lust together. I'm just going to read phrases of these because we're running out of time. It says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. In verse 27, he says, You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is taking the law that had been softened, right? It had been, it had been like, oh, well, that's really hard. What is, maybe it means something a little bit easier. And Jesus is, Jesus is re-encapsulating it in, it in its true meaning. He's saying of, of anger and lust that they're like adultery and murder, that they begin in the heart. So it's idolatry of the flesh to be adulterous with another person. And it's hatred of someone that you don't have the right to hate because you don't own them to be angry. That's what murder is. You should be, this is what Jesus is getting at. You should be ashamed and realize that, that you have failed in the law, not just because of the act, but because of the evil that is in your heart that led you to it. That is much as a part of your sin nature as the actual things that you do. It's the sinful heart that generates that in the first place. That's what Jesus is getting at. Jesus does a similar thing with divorce, right? And, there's, and, and Matt has thought about this. I, I'm not going to give divorce a, a fair look here, okay? So if, if something, if, if you have been in a divorce, right, or, or are going through one, like I, I want you to understand there is more here, all right? And, and we can talk about that. But what Jesus is saying here, very simply, is that the Jews had said, well, we don't even, you barely even need a reason to divorce, right? So they're divorced for no reason, and Jesus is saying, no, no reason for divorce, right? He's going over and over on top of what they've said, because they were saying, oh, you can get divorced, just, you know, just give the lady a piece of paper so that she can prove that she got divorced from you. Jesus is like, that is not the heart of the law at all. The heart is that God hates divorce, right? He hates it because it doesn't mirror what what the marriage is supposed to show, which is his relationship to his people, a covenant agreement of faithfulness. He doesn't want to see that ripped apart. So Jesus is teaching over that. He's clarifying it. The same thing with oaths here. He he basically says, uh, again, you've heard it said, uh, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn, right? He says, so what they did is they would say like, yeah, I promise I'll do that, and I promise it, uh, you know, like, it's like, so I, was, I, swear, I swear on my, my grandma's grave. You know, you say stuff like that, because you want to emphasize, like, yeah, I really mean it. Jesus is saying, what, like, you, you can't even keep your promises, so even when you swear by someone, like, that doesn't make you any more likely to not lie. So why are you doing it? So just don't, don't even do it at all. You're, you're not recognizing your own sinfulness here. The same thing with retaliation here, it's verse 38. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians, which I've been studying with some guys here. It's been really fruitful. 1 Corinthians 6, 7, Paul says, he's talking about lawsuits and and arguments within the church. He says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Those are Paul's words. Like, wouldn't it be better to have peace with your brother or sister? and be wrong than to have to insist on your own way? See, the Christian understands, the one who is in Christ understands that they have, we have no personal rights, that we, cannot, that we cannot give up and that cannot be trampled on because 
Here's the thing, we have the same rights as Christ does, right? Christ imputes his righteousness and his right to us. But what did Christ do with his rights? He was the king. He was above all, through all. Everything was created through him. But where does he come? Down to the lowest level, and he's obedient to the point of death on a cross. So just a quick point of application, church. What are, the, what are your personal rights that you won't give up, right? What, what are the personal rights? And I'm not talking about fighting for the rights of others, because I think that's a, scriptural, that's a scriptural concept, right? I want to make sure other people are favored. But what are the personal rights that you won't give up? Are they founded in obedience to God, right? Are your rights founded in obedience to Christ, or are they founded in making sure you get your fair share? Because if, if there's any of the latter, I think that's a case of, that you need to repent to the Lord. Jesus finally says, starting in verse 43, he says, love your, he, he, he says this, he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, see the idiom was love your lover, but Jesus is saying, no, 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 yeah, love your lover, love your hater as well. I think of, I think of this phrase, uh, David and I, uh, David Amos and I work out in the morning sometimes. And uh, we watch workout videos that are led by ladies, and they kick our butts regularly. So I'm not afraid to admit that. Um, but there's this one lady who uh, consistently talks about getting rid of negative people in your life. Um, and it always rubs me the wrong way because I, I think of this scripture. It's right. It's like if you have a negative, negative person around you, you need, to, you need to cut them out. Or like if you, there's negativity in your life, you need to get rid of that person or, the, or that thing. If the kingdom dwellers are sons of God then we will share character with the Father, correct? So the defining facet of God's love is that it extends fully and sacrificially to those who hate him. Hear the scripture, Romans 1, 29-32. This is describing everyone in this room. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, and though they know, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That is the state of man, right, outside of Christ. But, in Ephesians 2, 4, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But God, right, were it not for God's gracious mercy that he would love people like me who hated him, and I can't stomach someone who annoys me or is negative, no, you love that person more. You love that person harder, right? You care for that person as Christ has cared for you. So to heck with that new age nonsense. What we can see here is that Jesus rightly, it's in everything we've just read, 21 through, through 48, that Jesus rightly interprets the law, and we see clearly that everyone is condemned. I hope we could, look, look, this is, this is how Jesus ties this off. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. A condemnation as clear as day, because who, who's perfect, right? Jesus, Jesus should have just done a poll. So who qualifies? Anyone? Nobody? In the back? Nobody. Nobody's raising their hand for that nonsense. It's ridiculous. Because everyone is guilty. Everyone's worthy of punishment, not reward. And even the most righteous person wouldn't dare to say they live up to this standard. So this is why I want us to go back to 17 through, uh, through 20 uh, right now. So I want to read this to you. Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, until all is accomplished, therefore whoever relaxes one of the, one of the least of these commandments, which is the things he's, he just shared with us, right, and teaches others to do the same, relax them, will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying three things here. We're going to get through these as quickly as we can here. Verses 17 through 18. Jesus is saying that the law is good. Jesus is saying that the scriptures are good. The scriptures are true. And they're true because they point to me, is what Jesus is saying. The scriptures, all of that, it looks forward to me. So I'm not here to destroy them, right? Because they did the right thing. Because guess what? Here I am, just like I said I would be. So Jesus is not here to overrule anything or, or discount anything that is, is described or prescribed in the Old Testament. But Jesus is doing, he's not just obeying the law perfectly. This is something I want to say. So when we say that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, it's not just like some ceremonial or moral law that Jesus fulfills. He fulfills every promise that God ever made, right? Every prophecy about the Messiah. He makes God clearly right and good, and everything God said he is in the Old Testament is summed up in the person of Jesus. He is making all of God's promises come true. I mean, just a few. There's, I, think, I think I wrote down like maybe 55 or 60 of these when I was studying this. Just promises about Jesus that come true. These are the big ones. Genesis 3.15. That's the very beginning of the book, y'all. He's going to crush the serpent's head. Genesis 12.3. He's going to bless the nations through Abraham, Jesus. That a true king will come from the line of David. In 2 Samuel 7, Jesus. Psalm 40. That there's going to be a perfect sacrifice for sinners. Jesus. Isaiah 11, that, that the nations will be drawn to God in salvation through Jesus. Isaiah 61, that he would set us free from our sin. Jesus. On and on and on it goes, the Old Testament. Jesus isn't here to cast out the testimony of the scripture that points to him. He's here to prove that it's true, okay? So because he's going to fulfill them, to minimize them, and to twist them and make them seem like they say something that they don't, is to minimize his authority and his character and everything that he accomplishes. That's why the scripture has to be seen as whole, because it is the testament to Christ. That's the first thing. Second thing, so the law is good, but the, the tradition is not the law. This is important. So you remember last week when we talked about all the extra laws that the scribes had, had you know, like how much, how much needle and thread you could carry in your pocket and, you know, how, like how much of an oath you could make before if you didn't do what you said you were going to do, that it was lying, like all kinds of laws, okay? Jesus is addressing that. See, the Pharisees had created a new law and they had softened the old one, right? So they recognized that this law is difficult because it not only speaks to the way I behave but what goes on in my heart. And so what they did was they just said, okay, so we'll just make a law outside of this law that we can obey, and then we'll feel good about ourselves. Regulating the heart of man is much more difficult than regulating behavior. So they decided to skip it. So they had taken God's perfect law that was meant to lead them to worship, and they had corrupted it by centering it around man who could obey, who, and who could, obey the rules, and who, who could obey the rules best, right? Like, who's the best at obeying? So Jesus is preaching patently against that. He's undermining this false religion that they have created. The final thing, Jesus will fulfill the law and destroy the tradition, right? Jesus pushes the Pharisees and the scribes aside, and he says, 
These guys, they think they got it, but they don't. And because they think they got it, that's why they don't got it. So their self-assurance, the Pharisees and the scribes, and anyone who falls into that category, their self-assurance is misplaced because they are more unrighteous than anyone because of their confidence. And if you follow their tradition, what Jesus is saying, if you follow these guys' tradition, if you want to be like them, then you're going to be condemned with them. So Jesus is declaring war on false religion. The false religion specifically of the scribes and Pharisees. But this is the thing, guys. Humans, we have always done this. We have always taken God's good revelation and truth and corrupted it by making it more palatable, less offensive, and more, mainly more about us. Right? We trade, this, this is what Paul, Paul says this in, in Romans. He says, we traded the truth for a lie and worshiped the created things rather than the creator. If that's not true in the way we approach the worship of God, it, it's, it's, it's not true in anything. Just look at our modern context. And I'm, I'm, this is, there's, so many, there's so many false gospels out there, guys. This is just a few of them. Think of the prosperity gospel, right? Which is God's blessing, right? The blessing we talked about is about here and now. It's stuff and things. Like, who wouldn't want God to be like this, this cosmic wishing well where I'm just like, hey, God, I love one of these. And he's like, whoop, there you go, bro, I love you. Like, consequence free. Like, who, who wouldn't want that? The reality is nobody. Because if God is there just to give me the things that I ask for, I'm not going to ask for forgiveness of sins, right? I'm not going to approach God and be like, God, I know that I'm a sinner and you're holy and, and I would like your forgiveness. No, I'm just going to ask for stuff and then I'm going to be damned when I die. Think about Unitarian theology, right? So it's like this idea of, and this is kind of a broad term, but as, as long as I'm seeking to be a better person, that God will understand, right? It, you know, here's the thing, though. Except you can't be a better person. We're condemned right now. It doesn't matter if you improve from this point. You still have a mountain of sin behind you that you can't deal with on your own unless you submit to God as he reveals himself in Christ. And just think about like, like postmodernism, like relativism. You kind of get to pick and choose the parts of God, and all of these critiques are kind of within the church. So I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking about people that don't even believe in God, right? But this idea that we would be able to pick and choose the parts of God that we like and, and toss or ignore the rest. Jesus is God, and he is unequivocal about that. That the gate is narrow, he's going to say in chapter 6. The gate is narrow. It is as wide as me. You are not going to pick and choose your way around me to get into the kingdom of heaven. It is through me and through me alone. And Jesus minces no words here, right? you got to be perfect. If you want to get in past me, be perfect. Do it. But you can't. And that's where relativism leads us. And this is where the newest religion to, sur- to resurface, rather, the one, that's, the one that's, that, that's seeping its way into the church now, is the social gospel. The gospel that says that, that you can't be a real Christian unless you follow Jesus and fight for this cause, support this cause, do this thing, be about this thing, be against this thing. Because that is not the gospel. It is Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. All right? I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't advocate that we be good citizens of the earth while we are here. But I'm saying that is not the gospel. That you don't add something to following Christ as the scriptures, as the scriptures have presented him to us, plus doing this thing. That is not the gospel. That is not what Jesus preaches to us. The social gospel says that the gospel is important. This is the other thing. It undermines the authority of Scripture. It says that the gospel is important, but it can't address these so, this social issue or, this, or that social issue or this systemic issue. So you have to do, you have to do something else. Right? The gospel can't really get at that. You have, to, you, have to, you have to come at it from a different angle. This is not the gospel. The gospel 
is the good news that Christ has died for sinners and that he offers true life change and true meaning and true redemption. Jesus offers true freedom from oppression. The real truth and the real justice is the justice of God, the justice of God that he has performed upon the cross. And that is what we must preach and what we must be about first and foremost. And we should add nothing to it because it denigrates the perfection of who Jesus is. We're almost done here. i got two more minutes, guys. What Jesus is getting at here is that religion is not about man. It's about God. Right? It's not man-centered. It's God-centered. And the scriptures don't point you to Jesus. Right? The, the scriptures point you to Jesus and Jesus isn't just the dispenser of truth. I want to rephrase this. I, I messed up when I was saying this, and I want you to make sure what I'm saying. The scriptures point you to Jesus, but Jesus isn't just the dispenser of truth. He is the truth, right? He's not the mouth of truth. He is truth himself. Jesus isn't giving you a map to go and find a treasure. Jesus is the map. Jesus is the treasure. Come to Jesus this morning, church. It's simple. Just shed the false religion and the false assumptions that people press into us, that the culture presses on us, and fall at Jesus' feet. And meek and lowly, when, when you repent and turn to him, he will bury your sin under a mountain of grace that he has bought by his own blood. He alone. Nothing else. No work. No law. No prerequisites. Just repentance and faith in your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What good news that gospel truly, truly is. We don't need to add anything to it, and we shouldn't take anything away from it. Let's pray, church.